1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times, and Art Roche of The Athletic. Tournament football tends to justify the old cliche about taking every game as it comes. But already, and probably inevitably, some optimistic souls are looking beyond England's last 16 game against Germany. This is how they see things. Sweden in the quarters, Netherlands in the semi, take your chances in the final. Nonsense, of course. England may be in the weaker half of the draw, and Germany may be beatable. But it's never that simple, is it, Johnny?
2: Well, it never is, and one shouldn't ever get too far ahead of yourselves. We've seen it before, you know. Manchester City in the Champions League a couple of years ago springs to mind when apparently all they had to do was turn up and beat Lyon, and they would, you know, the easiest draw, and they'd they'd, they'd get all the way to the final, and of course, fell at the first hurdle. England were supposed to have a procession to the World Cup final last time out and and Croatia turned out to be better than expected. I mean, at the same time, this is a golden opportunity for England as well. They are lucky with this draw and they shouldn't have any excuses or to shy away from that. So it's, it's about getting the mental balance right. The fact of the matter is they've got a flawed German team and then a benign draw ahead of them. And they've got games at Wembley and a final at Wembley. There'll never be a better opportunity. So, As I wrote in the paper last week, this is not a time to be talking about development or or making any excuses. This is a time to really go for it. But simultaneously, you cannot play a game thinking about what comes next. You've got to just think about the opponents that lie ahead. And those next opponents are Germany. There's no need to think about anything other than that. There's, There's no need to think about Euro 96. There's no need to think about anything but a game plan to beat a team that should be beatable and England
1: need to back themselves and they need to do it. Yeah, there's going to be an awful lot of baggage lugged towards uh, Wembley on Tuesday night. All the old stories are going to be trotted out. Art, oh, 1966. As Johnny just said there, 1996, 2010 and the goal that never was. Now, ah, oh, it's probably not state secret that you belong to a slightly different generation to Johnny and myself as a member of that new generation does history really matter
0: I think in a sense it does but it gets to a point where it's not really needed in the discussion anymore I'd say if if we look back just like a week ago heading into the England Scotland game both broadcast companies were running specials about it almost a week in advance and I think that's a bit over the top and then when we're thinking okay we're I guess six days away from England Germany now I'm not sure there's a a desire to see England's past failures against Germany in the build-up this early I think in terms of um reference points so past games there's obviously going to be people who look back at those moments. And I think almost now it's viewed at not as seriously as as when they happened. They're almost points just to laugh at when you think back at them. I think probably, of course, the one that I remember most is the Frank Lampard goal against Germany in 2010. But almost that now is looked at in a comedic way because it's history and it's going to have no bearing on what's going to happen on Tuesday evening so I think of course you have to understand the history of the game but there comes a point where that history is a bit overblown at times
1: yeah well when we're talking about uh, Gareth Southgate I would say don't mention the penalty but that's already happened (laughs) at about 10 past eight This morning, with Gareth Southgate, Johnny, obviously you you see him up close on a regular basis. He promises there's more to come. Tournament football exerts its own pressure. Is he facing a bit of a crisis of faith in the way that he selects his team and the nature of his team? Is he becoming more conservative?
2: Well... I'm not sure if, if it's conservative. Well, maybe, maybe it is. There's, there's something funny, I, I personally feel, that's gone on with Gareth and England in this whole tournament cycle. And, and it started with that 33-man squad, which I found bizarre, which came out of the blue. It, you know, it was presented as a measured decision, and it wasn't. It was, it was a last-minute decision to name 33 instead of 26. Then you had the four the four right-backs, which again felt bizarre. Felt a a very uh, uncharacteristic thing to do, and and I think we've 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 seen that taken into the tournament. You know, Trippier who played really well, but you know on on the wrong side for the first game, then changing both fullbacks, and then another set of changes for the the the, the Czech game, and and I didn't even mention the, the the friendlies where he ends up playing players that aren't actually part of the tournament. There's been a lot of strange things. And, and as, a, as a kind of seasoned England watcher, I suppose, it, it has given me memories of, of seeing England managers in the past sort of lose their marbles a little bit. Fabio Capello in 2010. I'm not saying Gareth lost his marbles at all, but he has done a few things in the last month that have been a contrast to the sure-footed manager who seemed to really know his own mind in 2018 now there are signs that there were signs in, against the Czechs that a plan was starting to come together to make excuses or, or to mitigate things for Gareth England had injuries coming into this tournament with, with Henderson and Maguire he had a very difficult situation with the Champions League final players not being available so if he goes ahead if he goes on and wins this tournament we'll look back and we'll say well this was all a bit of a strange build-up but it was necessary because of, of, of what of all the conditions at hand. But I, I do that like you, you just mentioned this kind of slight lack of this loss of faith. I think the the loss of faith or the, the test of faith in Gareth has come about because of all these changes and the sense of a team that in the middle of a tournament is still trying to to find itself. Conservatism, I'm I think Gareth's always been a little bit of a conservative manager. You know, he, he went to the World Cup with 352 which you know really wasn't it wasn't an attacking you know germany 33352 or 343 three. it was it was quite a conservative 352 so I think that's what he is and I and I think there's nothing wrong with that if that's his brand of management on top of that he does play you know he tends to have a solid block of six or seven and then try and let the attackers have a go so I, I don't think he's changed that I think what has changed is this uncertainty that's come into the equation with selection and strategy decisions, and I'm just waiting to see which way this goes. As I said, I've been here before with England managers, just mm-hmm. waiting to see which way this one goes. Is he gonna? Is he going by the end of this show us that this is all part of the the master plan, or are we going to be looking back and saying
1: what happened to Gareth in in 2021? Mm. Can I just be specific, and and actually as a personal reference point, are Bukayo Saka? Obviously, you see a lot of him with Arsenal. Man of the match, I think, in three of his five England starts. His directness and decision-making under pressure were really quite marked in the Czech game. Would you play him? And if so, why?
0: First of all, I think that's the main thing that stands out when you watch him for the first time, his intelligence in those areas. That's something that was clear when I first saw him in the Czech trade trophy in 2018. And I think... I think as he's progressed through to first team debut first team regular England debut I think you've seen that at each stage as well as just his fearless nature and I do think that not playing him in the first two group games was a wise decision because of the amount of football he played last season for Arsenal he was the club's second most used outfield player at just 19 years old so a rest was needed. Going into Germany, I think I would play him and Jack Grealish. I think they both gave England what they were lacking in the first two group games in players that not only could they drive at a defence, but they could also pick the right ball. And I feel that one of the reasons Gareth may be branded as that conservative manager at the minute is because he has a variety of players in that profile who can make a difference in the final third, but he hasn't put as much trust in them as, say, his regulars just yet. And I think now that the time has come to play Germany, putting trust in them, when they have proven that they can make a difference, I think it's only right. And I think that that's where England are most dangerous as well, when they have players who can... Make opposition defenders make decisions, <laughs> and hopefully that will be the case come Tuesday.
1: Mm. There's so many external considerations and complications, aren't there, Johnny? You know, most notably the COVID quarantining of of Mason Mount and and Ben Chilwell. Just to concentrate on on Mount, who you know is probably more integral to England's style. Given all those restrictions, well, I think they end the night before the game. Should he play? And if he does, how will that influence the balance of the team, do you think?
2: I don't think he can play given how close to cut off the the, the, the ending of the restrictions are. I I I, I just don't think that's I don't healthy for team morale guy that's not fully training to then suddenly be parachuted in, and it's probably wouldn't be healthy for Mount. And let's be honest as well, and I love him as a player. He hadn't quite caught fire in the first two games, and you know I think Sack has presented a really difficult dilemma almost for for Gareth because he wouldn't he wouldn't have had him down as his right sided attacking element going into this tournament, but he was so good, especially in the first half an hour against the Czechs, that it asks a question as to whether he has to stay there, especially when you think. Germany have got Hussens on the, on the left, who's a real sort of flying machine going forward, but might leave spaces inside him to attack that, 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 that uh, Saka, with that intelligence art talks about, could exploit. Where England have been good in this tournament, driving from midfield or, or, or just in front of midfield. Sterling's done it a couple of times, dropped deep and driven with the ball. Phillips did it a couple of times in the first game. Saka did it to, to, to sort of create the position for the, the goal against the Czechs. Grealish did it very well. That's been an area that England have got strength in, and they should be looking to do that against the German team that are going to play, you know, a midfield two, which isn't necessarily a very defensive midfield two if it's Gundogan and Cruz, with a defence that's vulnerable to pace, with very attacking wing backs with a high line as well. So there's, there's, there's scope there. I, I it, it's, an inter- it's, a, it's an interesting one. I think that the strongest part of the team has been on the left. It's been Sterling, Grealish and him interchanged beautifully. So again, there's probably no need for Mount to come back in there. And I think the decisions are more what he does on the right, whether it's keeping Saka. I mean, you know, we may talk about Jadon Sancho. I don't think Gareth's even going to think about him. But the Germans will be amazed if he doesn't come in or, or isn't doesn't come in the equation on the right. So but I think anyway, I think I think the left's kind of sorted after the last game and, and it's that right hand side that's the the, the the part of the pitch he's gotta think about.
1: Mm. I suppose the you know the bigger picture is that you know England need to introduce some dynamism into their performances. If you think about it, I think it's five shots on target in three games, only one completed cross into the eighteen-yard box <laughs> by Rhys James. And if we're going to go real nerd alert territory, there's a great optostat that I saw where England have got the ball up the pitch at 0.98 metres per second in open play during a tournament, which is the lowest of all the teams. And actually against the Czechs, it was even worse, 0.7 metres per second. Is that measured or is it stilted? And can a modern team essentially chug its way to a title?
0: I think they can. We saw we saw with Portugal in 2016 that <laughs> you you can go on to win the Euros without even winning a group game. But in terms of those stats in England, what kind of springs to mind when they, they are red, especially the ball progression is the profile of midfielder that you have in that midfield too. I know a lot of people would rather be safe than sorry and have two people who can make up for maybe the defensive weaknesses of the front three or front four, if you want to go with that. But when they're moving the ball forward so slowly, I think there comes a point where, especially when the Germany midfield will be, as you mentioned earlier, Mike, much older and maybe not as fit is the wrong word, but you would be able to get at them. I feel that possibly changing that dynamic in midfield could work to your favour when you need the pace of the game to be much quicker than it has been in 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 the first three games of the tournament. And that's where, I guess, Calvin Phillips has shown that he can break forward off the ball as well as on it. But um, maybe next to him, Declan Bryce hasn't been progressing the ball as quickly or as well as most would have expected from an England midfield. And that's where, I guess, you've got to decide whether you stick or twist with a midfield p- double pivot or you move to just one person at the base and then having two more adventurous midfielders. So maybe Phillips and Foden could be used as a more central midfielder. I think those are probably the more pressing dilemmas than even Saka because that almost dictates how the game is going to be played, what pace the game is going to be played at. So that's where I see the the big decision coming for, for Gareth Southgate.
1: Tournaments never exist in isolation, do they, Johnny? You know, I'm thinking here, you know, what are the internal dynamics of the England squad when you've got three players at least wrapped up in their own individual career decisions? So you've got, your, you know, to your point about Jaden Sancho, uh, all the talk around is, uh, you know, bid after bid after bid, penny after penny after penny. You know, three hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week over five years has been mentioned. You've got Harry Kane. Well, we know you know that saga is is you know seemingly endless. And Raheem Sterling's been brought into that equation as well. That's got to have some form of impact, doesn't it?
2: I think. Well, I think I think you've got to separate the, the the players. Actually, I think Harry Kane's just one of those guys who almost nothing will have an impact on him. He's just that he's 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 just got that kind of very literal goal scorers, strikers mentality. I I I don't think it's gonna affect him. I actually we've seen Raheem Sterling's odd position, shall we call it, at Manchester City affect him positively. He's played like he's got a point to prove. and he's reminded us actually in the last three games just what a, what a good what a good player he is and what how he's actually a bit more than he had come to be used at, at the city last year. Sancho's the one where we don't know what's happening behind the scenes and I can only think that Gareth thinks it's a problem. There's no other explanation for him not being used, utilised and, and, and part of England's weaponry because he's such a good player and I can only think that Gareth is seeing someone he doesn't reckon is fully in the right place or fully focused and I would have sympathy for Sancho in in that he is young. This is the big moment in his career if he's coming back to English football, and you've got this ludicrous Manchester United situation where, you know, the it almost feels like they're they sort of you know raking through the, the cupboards trying to find uh, any sort of unused piggy banks or whatever that they can empty <laughs> and get a few more coppers and offer a Dortmund and inch closer to the total that they need to get. I mean. You know, my goodness. So, uh, yeah, I think I think the the it'll affect different players in different ways. And Sancho, I get, I'm guessing, but I don't know. I'm guessing is the one that Gareth feels is affected by it.
1: Yeah, looking further back in the team, are uh, defensively, you know, we can expect Harry Maguire to continue with uh, John Stones, who's uh, I think you know, that's a that's a decent partnership. Full-backs probably need to be freed up a little. What about in goal? Has Jordan Pickford answered the critics? Because, you know, I'll put my hand up. He wasn't we wouldn't have been my first choice had Nick Pope been there, for instance. Has he has he done well enough to actually get people off his back? I think for the time being, yes. Obviously at club level, there's still
0: questions being asked every week. But for England, he has done very well so far this tournament. I don't think there's been any panic situations. Um, that I can remember off the top of my head. Aside from just normal goalkeeping, he has been a good presence at the back, especially, of course, they're going to harp on about three clean sheets in the group. But I do think that he has been a sound performer in goal with what happens in front of him as well. I think it's important for him to be even more vocal than he already is with the changes that could happen ahead of the uh, next game I think Harry Maguire did very well coming back into the side against the Czech Republic not just defensively but again in terms of getting the ball forward he was can't remember who the pass was to but it was a lovely pass down the channel which led to a shot on goal and I think that's what was one of the things that was missing in the first two games although John Stones can play out the back I think Maguire does carry it a bit further forward and can be a bit more penetrative with his passing. And then with the fullbacks again, probably <laughs> they do need to be freed up a bit more. I think uh, Rhys James is probably the more, the more um, adventurous right back in the squad at the minute. But I guess it does come down to what Gareth Southgate wants from his fullbacks at the time against Germany as well, considering they're going to be attacking the wider, wide areas a bit more. They may not be freed up as much in that game anyway, because you have um, Kimmich and Gersens to take care of. <laughs> so um, maybe it's not going to be in that game where they're going to f- be freed up, but you'd expect it to happen at some point.
1: Mm. You know, lest we forget, Johnny. Germany was six within six minutes of going out. You know, as Art, Art said, they are strong on that left, with uh, Husens in particular. You know, this is a tournament actually, which. Some of the less fashionable clubs in Syria have produced players, you know, both for the Italian national team and in this case, Atalanta and Germany. What do you make of Germany and where will their principal threat come from, do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, a, they're a mixed bag, aren't they? They're a hodgepodge. And, you know, I talked about how there'd been a strange build up for England. I mean, what a strange build up for Germany with. You know, just the the stream of results, Switzerland, North Macedonia, three years of downturn, Joachim Love being vilified, going from being national hero to vilified, and then suddenly bringing back Muller and Hummels, which is, you know, kind of cultural equivalent, I suppose, of... And they know, bringing back Rio Ferdinand and and Paul Scholes for a tournament or something like that. But actually, the, the right decision because certainly with Miller's case, he's such a good player. Hummels is 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 you know the pace really has gone. But but I suppose he's quite an intelligent defender still. I mean, the difficulty for Germany comes from. I I think rather than name an individual player, I think I'd characterize it as nous or intelligence. I look at that team and I see. I see Tony Cruz, who, you know, one of the passing geniuses of of our generation, and Gundogan, who's who's an incredibly intelligent footballer, Joshua Kimmich, who, if he played in the Premier League, everyone here would understand exactly how good that guy is. Can play anywhere, just a superb football brain and and competitive mentality. And then Kai Havertz, who, towards the end of the season at Chelsea, began showing us the talent that he is, and another very, very, very intelligent footballer whose movement into those areas is, is incredible. So I think that's the difficulty. I, I think you've got a very intelligent, canny football team who might be able to exploit weaknesses or see where the weaknesses are for England. I think the weakness in Germany is probably, physically in terms of lack of pace at the back, and just, a, you know, an imbalance that's even greater than England's towards midfield and attacking talent at the expense of lack of defensive solidity.
1: And what they all have also got, I suppose, are is a you know, coach at the end of his career with Germany, Joachim Love, been there, seen it, got the T-shirt, smelt the T-shirt. He's got a fantastic ability, it's always seemed to me, to actually react in game. Uh, and probably has the, the obviously has the tournament experience that someone like Gareth Southgate does not have. What sort of role will he play? Can a coach decide a game?
0: I think so, yes. We saw that with hung- the Hungary game. I think that's probably the most recent example. They're knocked back twice and they come back, although it's absolute necessity that they at least get a point from that game, they got it. And I think when you're looking at um, Joachim Love's. CV I guess you call it he's been very meticulous for, from the day that he walked in even when he was um assistant manager I think and that's where game management from Gareth Southgate is going to have to come into it a lot more than it has done in, in any other game I think where yes you can rely on set pieces and yes you can have a certain way you want to go about things but that can change in an instant depending on what happens in the game And I think staying stuck on your plan A for too long isn't great. You have to admit when you're wrong. And you have to see that in in the heat of the moment as well. And if Southgate does get something wrong in the early stages of the game, you probably wouldn't change it straight away, I don't think. But changing it at least at some point in the game, hopefully early in the second half, (laughs) Changing it at least at some point in the game will be important because I think Germany will be ready to to change whenever they see that England are on top in that game. I know they've played with a three at the back with wing backs mostly during the tournament, but they also have Leroy Sane and Timo Werner who offer different different challenges up top. And if if they do come on, how are England going to deal with that pace with Harry Maguire who's going to be on his second game if he does start. <laughs> and depending on what fullbacks Gareth Southgate goes for, how, how are those challenges going to be dealt with? That's what I'm also interested to see because they're not easy challenges to face.
1: Yeah, let's move on if we could to Wales, Johnny. In essence, we've got the, the Leicester derby in Amsterdam on Saturday. Kasper Schmeichel against Danny Ward. Several issues flow from that. Just like you to dwell on Schmeichel, if you could please. He's an emotional leader at club level, and that seems to be replicated for Denmark. You also know his dad, Peter, very well. What's the significance of the bloodline, especially in the context of, if you think about it, that win over Russia on Monday, for me anyway, brought back memories of those irresistible teams they had in the 80s? I know it's a very long and convoluted question, but how? Yeah. Uh, thank you, mate. H- how how <laughs> uh, how important is Schmeichel going to be? And give me an idea of the personality of, of a guy who could well shape that game. Well,
2: to try. I mean, I know exactly what you, you, you're talking about, Mike. Actually, because I was, I I see echoes of the past in in that Danish team. And I thought they played like the '86 team at times in that second half against Russia, which for you know people before arts of arts generation rather, <laughs> was just what a you know just an incredible attacking great team, what a team. team you know loud drop Elkjar uh, and and just lots of, of of adventure and pace and abandon and they didn't they fell short at the '86 World Cup but that they really entertained and that's what Denmark were like in 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 the second half against Russia. But then you got eight, you got ninety two Denmark, who of course was this incredible story when one won the Euros. And there's something, there's something special about the team spirit of this current Danish side that is like the ninety two team. Because that ninety two team was a band of brothers. A lot of them came from Bromby, including Peter, who was at Man United at the time, but was developed in the Bromby system. Very close, very tight knit. Called in at the last moment. There was a, a a tragedy to deal with, or a real you know an emotional sort of sadness at the heart of that triumph because Kim Vilfort's daughter Lena was terminally ill during and 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 during the tournament he actually had to leave and, and go and go and visit her and come back and 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 there was a there was there was a real there was a soul to that team and and there's a soul to this Danish team now which we've seen the 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 what the measure of what they are as human beings, with with the way they rallied around and have reacted to and 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 tried to honor Christian Eriksson in their performances. So there's, I do see lots of echoes of the day that Danish past. And then of course, when you look at Casper, and and yes, I do know Peter and and, and there's a there's a, of course, <laughs> it's like I said, there's a similarity between a father and son. Of course, there is, but but they are they are. It, 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 just as Peter was more than a goalkeeper you know he captained Manchester United to the 99 European Cup final he scored 11 goals as a goalkeeper he was more than just a guy you know he redefined the position Casper is also somebody that, that, that you know his influence spreads way outside the 18 yard box you know at Leicester he's one of the, the pillars of the club he's, he, he, he's one of those that represents the identity of the club and, and he him and Simon Simon Kerr are, are, are that for for the Danish team, and then of course you've got this the excellence of his performances, and his growth as a footballer, and you mentioned Danny Ward. I mean, one thing that that interests me about this game with the Leicester hat on is if this goes to a penalty shootout. You know I don't know if anyone's seen Danny Ward in a penalty shootout, but he is good. He is very <laughs> very good in a penalty shootout situation, but Casper in the twenty eighteen World Cup saved three penalties in a game against Croatia and went out. I think it's the only goalkeeper in history to save three penalties and go out in a match, two in the shootout, one in, in, in normal time. So I'd almost fast-forward to a shootout and just see which one came out top because it would be a fascinating contest.
1: <laughs> I don't know what you're like on, on Walt Disney uh, movies, Art, but it seems to me that Wales are going to be cast as the team which essentially kills Bambi's mum. The The emotional vote will be for Denmark... Because of the obvious backstory, you've also got you know Wales, a team almost they they're very similar to Denmark in, in in as much as that they're quite emotionally driven, very close. Give me your appreciation, please, of the job that's been done by Rob Page, but also maybe look at Gareth Bale as well. How does he fit in when you look at the time
0: frame that's been handed to Rob Page? I think. First of all, knowing the players enough to set a, a coherent plan, <laughs> I'll say it is the first thing you look at, and he has done that, even though the game against Italy almost was, I'd say, a one-off. It was very strange watching that game where the clock goes down and they lose 1-0 and they're extremely happy. That was probably the strangest that it gets. But I think aside from that, the Welsh DNA of what a performance is, so Aaron Ramsey breaking into the box very late, Gareth Bell having that license to, to cause havoc where you, he feels he can, that's been there. But also with that has come an understanding for game situations, which has seen them through the group and got them into the knockout stages. I think that going into the round of 16, rather than it being about tactics, I think it is going to be driven mostly by emotion, we all know what happened in 2016 with Wales, how far they got and how big a part of motion played into that. How they were able to shock teams like Belgium, for instance, how they almost got over the line against England. I think that they will be met by a force in Denmark, especially not just the, the Russia game, which was amazing. But I think the way that they started the game against Belgium in the group stages was outstanding belgium just seemed shell-shocked and i don't think wells would it would do wells any good to to not be wary of that having an emotional response would be just as important as understanding what they need to do in a tactical sense especially considering that denmark are the opponents so yeah i think they have done well so far but this is probably going to be the toughest physical
1: and mental challenger of, of the tournament so far emotion does obviously play a fundamental part in football, Johnny. As such, let's dwell a little bit on Scotland. (laughs) Reality reasserted. And do you think there will be any legacy from this tournament for Scottish football? Look,
2: we have to make a positive legacy out of this and and not sit there crying about yet another anti-climax. This is a return to the, the top table. It ended in disappointment, but... I think it has given all Scots a taste for, for this again. And, and the next target has to be the World Cup. And we've got a player for the future in Billy Gilmore. You know, the, the, you know if, if you're stripping away everything else in this tournament, a top class guy that we can build around for, for 10, 15 years emerged. But there's a backlash against Steve Clark. I I understand it because I think he got the tournament wrong in the cold light of day. Scotland had the wrong team out against the Czechs and also the wrong approach the game mentally I think they were inhibited conservative maybe overwhelmed by the occasion and it's a manager's responsibility to to prepare the team right and and, and make sure that you know those mentality issues aren't there so I, I think this is a it's a strange tournament to come out of because I think Steve Clarke's been been great for Scotland and I'm not suggesting for a moment that there should be any doubt about his position but at the same time you're looking at a manager to uh, you know acknowledge what went wrong and to try and grow from this and I hope Steve can and my overwhelming feeling just as a Scot is is I've, so I've been here before of course <laughs> every tournament in fact in my lifetime <laughs> but I you know it's that Delamitri song don't come home too soon again we've well we were always at home but we, we we finished it too soon you know and um you look at other countries peer countries the czechs the welsh austria they're still in the tournament and why not us we've got to do better scotland have got to do better as a football country you know yeah we don't have the best squad in the world but we don't have the worst and at some point We've got to break the cycle and and play above ourselves, be inspired and, 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 and approach things more positively, and just you know, just do something for goodness sake, just do something in my lifetime, please, <laughs> please. So we can't we can't fall back. You know Michael Grant in The Times has written a very good piece today, as he always does, about how Scotland can't just play the old oh, well, we were proud to be there, you know we show pride, nonsense. We're better than that. We're more than that. You know, everyone's proud about the nationality. Everyone's proud of the national team. That's you don't get a medal for that. You know, well done Scotland. You sang "Flower of Scotland." Great. Come on, there's got to be more on the pitch, and there's got to be more ambition, and it, let's look at that first game against the Czechs and and really say we've got to be more than that. We've got to grab these situations. Got to get that World Cup, and we've got to go to that World Cup, and and and. Ne you know, with a player like Gilmore, actually look to make an impact and not just look to be part of it.
1: Yeah. Ah, oh, just uh, for reference, Delamitri, are uh, what's <laughs> probably known as a uh, soft Go ahead. Go ahead. rock combo. With with Scotland, Billy Gilmore, as Johnny said, was the standout. He needs a full Premier League season on loan. Norwich are uh, uh, leading the the scramble to get him. I just want to concentrate on one other Scottish player, if I could, John McGinn. He does look to me, and I know he has been mentioned in dispatches, a really good fit for Liverpool.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of not only does he offer goals, but he can drive from midfield, he can fight in midfield as well. I know this is probably weird to bring up, but Yaya Torre actually did a a piece for the Athletic this week. On the importance of bums in football, <laughs> and and John McGinn was one of the players that he highlighted. We, we've as. all met a few bums well, along the way, haven't we, John?
2: <laughs> can, I, can can I just I just interject? I saw that and it made me think. Fergie once called Kenny Douglas the best bum player in football <laughs> history. So there's a good fit with Liverpool, isn't there? Signing a top <laughs> Scottish bum player, Carry on <laughs> Yeah,
0: like um, it was a good read, but I was I was laughing through most of it just because. The amount of times the word bum was written, it was just amazing. But with John McGinn, he was saying how very strong core, also very good understanding of how to use his body basically in those midfield areas. And we've seen with how Jurgen Klopp sets up that midfield. Although um, he has very good players who can be more adventurous, like Genie Wijnaldum, who is very much more adventurous for the Netherlands than he was for Liverpool it is about knowing that role to a T and being able to receive the ball push forward and almost do that in a formulaic way and I can see that John McGinn is a player that could do that but also maybe just break the mould a little bit and be a bit more of himself I think in that Jurgen Klopp midfield you've probably got players who are limited is not what I want to say but just a bit restricted to what they can do in order to make that team tick. I think John McGinn can fit those restrictions because of his skill set and also the fact that he has a very Liverpool-esque way about the way that he plays in terms of his attitude on the pitch. He doesn't... He rarely ever leaves anything on the pitch and I think he's very fearless in the way that he approaches games. He doesn't really care who the opponent is we saw in Aston Villa's debut season in the Premier League when I think very early on they went to Tottenham and he's the one that breaks through the pitch and scores. I can't remember if they actually won the game, but it's moments like that, the moment against Arsenal last season where within minutes he's firing the ball into the top bin. It was given offside, but I think those are moments where Liverpool could see a player and think, yeah, we're going to take a chance in him. So that seems like a very a logical way to look at, say, John McGinn's career path and where it could go.
1: Yeah, let's look at some of the contenders, if we could, Johnny. Belgium, Romelu Lukaku, who actually come to think of it, might also be called a, a posterior play. I don't know. He does, <laughs> He does protect the ball well. Is he at his peak, do you think?
2: I did a column with David Moyes actually in the paper today, exactly about this, you know, and, and he was marvelling at Lukaku's continued development as a footballer, where you've got a guy who, you know, was was always a, he was a super talent. He was 16 years old, he was playing in the Belgian top flight and there was, a, there was a scramble to get him and Chelsea got him. And sometimes with those players who are so physically and technically and, and, and mentally advanced for their years, the development stops. I think we saw it in Ross Bartley, for example, because it's been so easy for them as kids, they don't feel the need to keep adding to their game and then others pass them by. Lukaku is the opposite. You know, he's a guy that's continued to work on his game. I remember interviewing him a long time. He was just at Everton and he talked about how he used to go home and watch, relentlessly watch DVDs and videos of, of great strikers to try and see what he could do and add to his game. And he's, just been doing that for 10 years now. And I think what you what you, what you you see on the pitch is, is a guy who has got the full toolbox, more or less, understands exactly where he needs to be. You mentioned protecting the ball, Mike, absolutely right. You know, there's very few better at doing so. He's quite economical in his movement. You know, he's not, he's not roaming, he's not harry caning it and roaming all over the place. He's, he's staying in the area he needs to be, small movements around the box. Time perfectly to get in the right areas to, to to score. On top of all that, you've got leadership, the sort of which he showed in for Inter Milan this year, and of course it helps when you've got Kevin De Bruyne giving you the ball. It does, but you know, look, Lukaku scored something like sixty-five international goals. Mm. You know that doesn't come about by accident, and I, I I just watch him and I think Manchester United, what what were you doing? What were you doing? You had you know. They 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 now they need to sign a number nine again, and they had one of that quality. And maybe, if they'd stuck with Lukaku, and had built around him, and had been able to help him develop the way that clearly Antonio Conte was able to help him in in Italy, then they might they might have the striker they they need now. It cheers me watching him because I know that that's a guy that deserves everything he gets because he's put so much work into it.
1: Mm. Their game against Portugal promises to be one of the highlights of the last 16 when we look at Portugal obviously you can't go too much further than Ronaldo who's you know, still a force of nature isn't he record breaking or equaling force of nature at the moment I just want to look though at Renato Sanchez he was excellent against Germany won most duels most ball recoveries I think it was a 93% passing accuracy now, here's a player who was almost laughed out of Swansea. That does show you how haphazard a career path can be, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and I think when we look back to that Swansea season, if you're looking at the entire squad, I don't think any would have came out glowingly. But because he is Renato Sanchez, who did so well at Euros 2016, the spotlight is going to go on to him. And I think people will just latch onto that and think that it was all because of him. There's that famous clip from Swansea's game against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge where he passes into the advertising boards that people still share to this day. But I think that when you look at how the decisions somebody makes can almost shape a career, the decision to go to Lille is probably his best decision of all because not only is he playing football again but he's playing in a way where his talents are are being uplifted instead of in a team where you're fighting for survival where you have to be very probably negative in the way that you play he's allowed to be much more positive which is where you see those bursts and runs through midfield those little layoffs around the corner and also that more combative nature where you are able to fight but in a in a positive way and I think this season or last season with Lille was the perfect recipe going into this summer because now he's at a stage where yet again as he did in the last Euros he can showcase his real talent and then whether he decides to stay at Lille or not he's got Europe at his oyster, I think, because he is still so young. we forget how young he is because he broke into the Portugal national team as a teenager but he's still very young and has options I guess for his future and how he feels that he can develop. but I do think that people should maybe not forget about that Swansea season but just take into account the type of player he is and the type of play- the type of football. He has been asked to play, and how that may have not been the best fit for him at the time and wasn't a true reflection of the player or person that he is.
1: Yeah, I just need actually, obviously, to correct myself, that performance that I mentioned in detail was actually against France, of course. And France, Johnny, are the bookmakers' favourites for the tournament. You know, you talked about Manchester United and the or Abuse of the talent that they have available to them begs a the question about Paul Pogba. Some of his passing in this this tournament has been sensational. How can they contemplate not giving him what he wants? <laughs> wow, I mean that 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 pass he played to
2: Mbappe last night was just you know I I I made me shout out loud watching the TV. And that, you know, he played a couple of beautiful balls to Benzema as well. There's been this Pogba for France, Pogba for Manchester United disparity since he since he joined Old Trafford. Of course, when you've got N'Golo Kante next year, it helps. It helped Danny Drinkwater, let's say. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not just that. I think to give Pogba credit, it, it, it's, it, it goes beyond having Kante there. He it, it it's it's clearly a state of mind thing as well and a comfort thing where he feels able to express himself the way he does for France. Watching probably there is there is one thing in my head always when I see him in the Premier League and and I think it's different to in international football. I think if there's a weakness in his game. It's it's when he's pressured under pressure, despite having incredibly good feet and an ability to manipulate the ball. Maybe it's a slight size thing or whatever, but. I, I think in a fast game when he's been closed down quickly, he ends up having to play back and sideways a lot. And international football, it's a fact, it's not as quick and, and, and maybe the pressing isn't quite as intense. So that's a that's the only kind of technical explanation I can find. I think all the other explanations are to do with the players around him and the, the, the way he's able, he feels or is made to feel when he's in the different shirts. But for United, I, I I don't know. It's a difficult one because if they're just going to get the Paul Pogba of the last three or four years at Old Trafford, I'm not sure if it is worth renewing it. But that's not his fault. That that's them. You know, I think they've clicked, they've shown they don't really they haven't known what to do with them. And if they can't think of how to get the best out of them, then you know that that that's that's that is on them. But is it worth four hundred grand a week for the for the product that they got out of him for the last two years? It's not. But if they can get the Paul Pogba from France, if they want to have one last bash at that, then that guy is an absolute superstar. I, I, as I said, I, I just don't know if there's a way of kidnapping N'Golo Kante and sticking him in there instead of Fred. That might help.
1: <laughs> there's a thought. Uh, right, the, the Netherlands are, there is a new generation emerging there. You, know, you only have to look at Ryan Gravenbach, who looks to be the next off the Ajax production line. just want to dwell, if you could, please, on Doniel Malan. Now, he was let go for a nominal fee, which I think was 250000 in 2017 by Arsenal. He's done exceptionally well for PSV, who will probably get considerably more than two hundred and fifty grand if they sell him. Arsenal have really got a bad record about letting talent go, haven't they? Yeah,
0: I think about this. Almost every day. <laughs> <laughs> you should get out more, mate. <laughs> uh, Donnyo Marlon, Ishmael Benassir, Yunus Musa. Uh, on on the flip side, they have done well to to secure Bukayo Saka, Flo Balagan this season as well. But it is something that 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 I do just sit and wonder about at times. What could have been? But I think for for the Dutch national team, Marlon's done done very well even though he he didn't start the tournament as their, their first choice forward alongside Memphis Depay. I think their relationship is very good on the pitch where Marlon, his his freedom allows him, the pair to bounce off each other very well. I think we saw that for, for Depay's goal against North Macedonia, where Marlon picks up the ball in halfway, just roams about with the ball, finds the pie overlaps and then plays the ball back into him. And I think that's where you want a team where a striker is more than just goals. I think we see we actually see that with Romelu Lukaku, where although his goals are the, the main selling point, he is very much a team player that can provide for his teammates. And I think Marlon can do that. Before the tournament, he was actually playing in more of a wide position for the Dutch national team, even though he is a is a more natural striker. But even at PSV, he has shown the ability to look for his teammates in those positions and just play the simple ball, which can be a hard thing for strikers to do at times. But I do think that going into the knockout stages, having a team that can work like clockwork and just move the defenders around is something that is invaluable. Not just having a striker that that stays between the widths at the width of the posts. I think giving teams those other decisions to make will be beneficial. And he's a player that I've been waiting to see given a chance at the Euros. And I'm very happy that he's done as well as he has so far. And hopefully he continues to get a a chance because yes, Arsenal, the only first team football he got was in a few preseason friendlies. In Australia and Asia, where he played as a right wing back, um, and that's something as well that is going to stay with me forever for <laughs> the wrong reasons that I'll probably be thinking about in 50 years' time. Thinking, why did we do that? But yeah, good. I'm happy for him because if he didn't move to PSV, maybe he wouldn't be here right now. So can't complain, could can only appreciate it.
1: Yeah, just finally. You know, the the group stages are behind us. Highest scoring Euros ever. Italy have emerged. Spain eventually emerged. The real tournament starts now in the last 16. But for a domestic audience, there's only one game in town. England against Germany. You know, I'm braced for the deluge. What about ourselves? What are our thoughts, just finally and briefly? Johnny, uh, who's going to win and why? Johnny.
2: Oh, it's so hard to know what to expect from either this England team or, or Germany. I think we're going to see an epic, an absolute epic match with plenty of twists and turns and emotion in it. This is, this is Lowe's last chance for Germany. This is, this is Germany's last stand, England's big chance. And it's going to come down to probably moments and and going to come down to mentality if i have to nail to the mast england are a better team and gareth has shown an ability to rewrite england's poor tournament history you know colombia penalty shootout got over that hurdle croatia this time winning the first game i've expressed doubts about or questions about how the 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 backdrop of this tournament has been played by him, but I do think that 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 having Maguire back on the pitch is a huge comfort. I do think there were signs of it coming together against the Czechs, and I suspect England are going to prevail on a sort of night of real, you know, as I say, twists and turns. And if it goes to penalties, I'm not sure if they'd win. <laughs> so I'm not. I, I, but I think it might be an extra time winner or something. I don't know from let's say, from Jordan Henderson scoring his first ever international (laughs) goal. Some kind of mad storyline. Love it. Oh, what
0: about you? I think it's going to go one of two ways. Either it's going to be very much like a chess match, I think, for 90 minutes where Gareth Southgate maybe hopes to just stay in the game for as long as possible and then nick it. If he does go that way, I think... England will just about get through on, like Johnny said, in extra time, probably 2-1, I'd say, because I don't see them keeping another clean sheet against Germany, how Germany attack down the wings. The other way I see it going is him keeping faith in Jack Grealish and maybe Bukayo Saka's not the one to go for, but a player like Bukayo Saka that can drive forward. And if he does go that way, I do feel a bit more confident in it being done in 90 minutes but I do still feel that it'll be a very close game that finishes 2-1 again but just in in 90 minutes rather than 120 (laughs) so to keep it short I'd say a narrow England win
1: yeah that sort of conforms to my thinking as well I think England are probably the better of two flawed teams but beware there's going to be a lot of specious nonsense floating around before Tuesday night's game. Uh, with tongue firmly in cheek, here's my contribution to the pile of pap. We discussed the emergence of Robin Hoosens. He was born in a town called Emmerich. Lothar Emmerich won the last of his five caps for West Germany in the 1966 World Cup final. They equalised... From his last minute free kick But And I suspect you know what's coming West Ham went on to win the World Cup (laughs) In the shape of Jess Hurst History has spoken Or has it Thanks to Johnny and Art for their insight And to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast Enjoy the game If not the build-up